Welcome to Why the Long Face, two old friends lifting the lid on mental health over a beer with author and psychiatrist Paul Keedwell and business consultant and so-called comedian Ollie Turnbull. So, hello and welcome to uh, episode, uh, well, where are we now? Episode uh, episode four of season three of Why the Long Face with me, um, Oliver Turnbull, and... And me, Dr. Keedwell. How are you, Dr. Paul? I'm very well, thank you, actually. Uh, not too bad. I, I did have a little bit of waking up in the middle of the night for no particular reason. Standard COVID anxiety, maybe. I don't know. Well, we might get onto that later, actually. Um, but I don't want to. I don't want to tease too much. But we might. We might get onto that later. Uh, we we normally want to do a date stamp on these ones in the COVID crisis. So we're now yeah. in week five of lockdown. No, week four of lockdown, uh, and it's the twenty first of April, twenty twenty. And although the daily deaths in the UK are uh, slowly going down, um, we still feel like we're in the middle of something quite profound and unpleasant. I think that's right. We've just had uh, the latest daily death figures, which have gone up again. It's the bounce back uh, after the weekend. We've we've got used to uh, seeing this trend now where the daily deaths seem to dip at the weekends and it's just a reporting artifice, you know, and now it's back up again today. And the media are getting fractious and it looks like there might be a, a bit of a backlash against the government coming, especially if we're one of the last countries to sort of end the lockdown in, in Western Europe. Mm. I mean, we are in week five. I've just calculated it again. So uh, it's really interesting how we're comparing against other countries and how we are being compared against other countries, sometimes fairly and sometimes unfairly. It's a, oh, it's just a, if it wasn't so tragic, like we said last time, it would be a fascinating But time. I think I think people are going to get increasingly frustrated as the lockdown yeah. continues, because I think people do have this expectation of it starting to ease sooner rather than later. And I think it's going to be later. And uh you know, the UK is going to witness countries like Austria and Switzerland starting to relax its uh, its restrictions uh, on social distancing and people are going to start to get frustrated. And it's going to be, I think, future episodes are going to be all about the exit strategy and uh, how we how we deal with the frustration as well. Well, it's already started in Michigan. So there are people uh, from the Midwestern states getting the guns out and saying, hey, mm. this is, uh, I heard someone say, this is communism. I think a small lunatic fringe, though, aren't they? And that I, that's obviously a technical term. Um, <laughs> For a psychiatrist to say. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway. We should get to the point of this, of this particular podcast, shouldn't we? Uh, this particular episode. We have a fantastic guest lined up, don't we, Oliver? Uh, we're very excited indeed. Um, I mean, uh, uh, last week it was great to have Mark here. Um, I, I was almost going to say we might have done one better, but I don't want Mark to find me. In, in the <laughs> it's so silky smooth, Oliver. Silky smooth. <laughs> yeah. um, but yes, we have a, a lady who's joining us whose, whose name is Imogen Wall. So she's an aid worker. She's a mental health specialist, of course, which is why we're interested in talking to her. But um, she's actually actively working on the international response to C19. Cool people call it C19, by the way, now. Um, so, so why are you saying it? A good one, exactly. So um, let's just say hello, Imogen. Hi. Hello. Hi, Imogen. Talk to us. Yes, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do, because we both find it fascinating. We hope uh, others others will be interested too. Oh, my goodness. Well, at the moment, I'm, I seem to be uh, combining pretty much everything I've done for the last 15 years into one crazy rush which involves multiple jobs um i'm a frontline aid worker by to, for the last 15 years really doing sort of, sort of things like earthquakes and hurricanes so when bad stuff happens in the world people like me get on planes mostly i work for the united nations generally um so uh, asian tsunami 18 months there i did a year in haiti after the earthquake there um hurricane maria in in the Caribbean 2017, um, sort of interwoven with all of that for various personal and professional reasons. I got very interested in mental health uh, and trauma and mass events. So I did a degree in counselling and did some volunteer work with Samaritans and various other people. And now I teach. I'm a mental health first aid instructor. So uh, a pandemic, this is my first pandemic. It's my sixth epidemic that I've worked on. Um, plus the mental health aspect, plus actually, this is only the second one I've actually lived through in country. 
So as you said, it would be very, very interesting if it wasn't also kind of dreadful. Uh, yeah, of course. It's also very interesting. That CV makes you almost perfectly qualified to appear on a, a program about mental health consequences of pandemics. We had a, a, a fan- fascinating chat before chatting on here about uh, the behavioural consequences of stress caused by the lockdown. Um, we've discussed mostly the manifestations of anxiety in the body, but you raised the behavioural aspect. Yeah, behavioural and cognitive. It's a really, really something I really struggle with is that um, psychological things are thought of as mental. So we think of them as emotional. If you're stressed or you're um, anxious, then you, you cry or you, you behave, you, you, you say different things. Um, but actually, because of the origins of those responses, which are in the body, as you say, they come out in all sorts of different ways. So um, emotionally, we're different, but also physically, we're different and cognitively, we're different. And the cognitive stuff and the behavioral stuff actually is what I find when I teach on this stuff. People say things like, oh, my God, that's why I've been doing this. I had no idea. I thought that I was going completely barking. And it's really nice <laughs> to be able to say to them, actually, you're having a completely natural response to a very unusual and peculiar shared phenomena, which is a shared fear, which is which is a sort of feature of, of um, mass events like this or like um, as it earthquakes or, or hurricanes. But it's a collective experience and that makes it very particular and very unusual and for somebody who's never experienced anxiety or acute stress before the things they find themselves doing um can be quite quite unsettling i don't know if you've found yourself doing anything ridiculous over the last month uh, well the, yes. fun, the funny thing is the funny thing is i i've suffered from anxiety particularly when i was a young man and that that led me to get some treatment and indeed paul had, had helped me through because we've known each other so long and it's been an advantage to me imogen paul in, in this scenario because people are going i'm not sleeping uh, i'm having weird dreams i'm feeling very tired in the evening and it's all stuff that's familiar to me mm-hmm. and i've actually been able to you know explain to a few people a, a little bit like w- w- what you did uh then in, in that what you're suffering from here is a collective experience and therefore um we're all suffering from this chronic stress which are not very good to deal with and these are the things that come out when you're chronically stressed i've actually been in my own little way i think being able to explain it to other people having having been someone mm. who suffered from it before but I, I i'm sure there'll be people listening who are doing lots of weird things and they're crying out to hear that someone else has done them as well yeah and it's completely normal it's such a it's such i mean i, I, I made a list actually while i was oh thinking. excellent um so when i i I tried not to panic by, but the last day before we Boris Johnson made his announcement, I went shopping. I came back with two red cabbages. <laughs> I, do, I do really like red cabbage, but I was like, why on earth am I buying red cabbage? But there was a time. There was a time where there was no veg in the, on the shelves. If, if you didn't go there in the morning, that was it. Exactly. And something in my head went, maybe I'll need a red cabbage. And I have no idea where that came from. I'm, I'm sorry, Imogen, that just sounds very strange. It was very strange. <laughs> and I bought some jam and I put it in the fridge, even though the jar wasn't opened. Um, and I spoke to my boyfriend, who is actually a mental health nurse, who mm. said that he'd poured milk into his tea, which actually isn't that weird, except that he'd already put milk in the tea and there was a bowl of cereal without milk next to it. And he didn't realise he'd put the milk back in the fridge. So when you get tense, you just stop paying attention to what you're doing. Your your concentration goes, doesn't it? It completely does. And your ability to, to process information goes as well. Hmm. And one of the interesting things is because this is a as the shared response, and as you talked about on previous podcasts, a lot of this stuff, it happens in your body and, and it's contagious. It's as hmm. contagious as the virus, actually. So you can think cognitively in your mind, yeah. I'm not scared. I'm not bothered. I'm just mm. fine. But your body will still react. So you end yeah. up with this dissonance between what's going on in your mind and what's going on in your body. So you'll have the sleeplessness, even if you think you're not yeah. actually at risk, co- I, consciously. I got obsessed with pasta for a while, just because oh, yeah. I couldn't get hold of it. <laughs> We've all there were no, that. Yeah, the, the whole pasta obsession. Yeah, I just thought, oh, you've got to have pasta. If, if there's going to be, if there's a lockdown, you've got to have pasta. No, it's nonsense. There's loads of other starchy compliments, uh, condiments and, what's the word, starchy foodstuffs that you can get by on. I was obsessed with pasta. Star- starchy foodstuffs. <laughs> Actually, yeah. that's, a, an old, that's an old blues man. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, so what other silly things? I was washing supermarket packaging on one occasion. I was just thinking, well, I can wash my hands, but other people have been touching all the packaging in the shop. That was a bit extreme, I thought. I only did it once. But there's a logic to it, I suppose. Yeah. There is a logic to it, but one of the things that happens um, when we're in this kind of collective experience is that we cognitively, we become very bad at evaluating risk. Mm. And the worst people for this actually are really clever people who think that cognitively they're functioning well um, because they think they're not susceptible to fake news or to um, uh, cures that are yeah. going around on Facebook. And actually we all are. And mm. this is this is this is a cognitive consequence of what we're going through. It's not about intelligence. I had a really interesting conversation when I was working on Ebola in 2014-15 with a Sierra Leonean DJ who was a very smart guy. He was running a weekly radio show in Freetown, which was debunking a lot of the myths that were going around there about how to cure Ebola, how to prevent Ebola. And he said, I thought this was just stupid people. I thought it was just uneducated people in my country Mm. no science and then he came down to get a glass of water in the middle of the night and found his equally well-educated flatmate this is in freetown sitting in a salt water bath at two o'clock in the morning and mm. looking a little bit sheepish <laughs> and that was the point at which he realized because having a salt water bath which is obviously scientific nonsense was one of the things that was going around at the time as a way to prevent ebola and this guy was sitting in the bath. He was like, well, maybe it'll work. You never know. Yeah, I remember scouring the internet for ways of getting hold of hydroxychloroquine when that was touted as a potential treatment for reducing the severity of co of the COVID disease. Um, oh, yeah. And, well, it's, Crikey. I know. I didn't... All I was doing... All I was doing was trying to look for numbers that made the news look better. And I got more and more dispiriting as the number of deaths went up. But again, I was doing what I think you're describing, which is not being completely rational and uh, doing things that make me feel more comfortable. I think I was doing obsessive researching on the Internet, something that I always try to deter my patients from doing when talking about their options for their own treatment we're all susceptible to this i guess when we're in a, in a state of uh, relative panic uh, we start looking for um, evidence that's probably not of the best quality uh, for something that you know might reassure us yeah that's exactly what we do and it makes total sense if you think about it because what this does on multiple levels an event like this it makes us feel unsafe and what yeah. we're all trying to do is find safety and there are lots of different ways that people look for safety. Um, and if you think about it in terms of what this is fundamentally triggering in the body as a fight or flight response, lots of people react, you know, some people hide, literally they stick their head under the pillow. Some people do start arguments. Um, and some people really try, some people try and help. Some people become very energized and very focused. And some people do exactly what you're doing, which is to look for information because they're trying to make sense of what's going on. And if you're a clever person and you're used to having a kind of a story, an explanation, if that's what makes you feel safe, you look for that. So mm. I've had friends who stayed up all night, like reading epidemiological data, and it drives me mad because I've worked on a lot of epidemics. And what that means is I know I'm not qualified to read epidemiological data. It's super technical. But all that happens is they end up really sleep deprived. You don't turn yourself into an epidemiologist overnight. But it's no. fundamentally an anxiety management strategy. It's trying to make sense of what is going on and to find a story that makes us understand what's actually going on and therefore a basis for finding a way out of it. That's what we're looking for. It's all about seeking yeah. I think uh, we were talking also about the other way around, weren't we, where people get, um, particularly the older generation, our parents um, have become a bit naughty and are doing <laughs> a, a going out a lot when they, when they shouldn't. Yeah, that's happening to pretty much everybody I know. I have anyone in the podcast is wrestling with trying to convince their parents to stay home. I'm 44. Uh, my mum's 74. Um this is if, if this is you you are not alone everybody i know is struggling with this and i think it is very genuinely very difficult for the older generation because this is this is an event that suddenly 
classifies them as a vulnerable group, which is not a particularly nice label to have, mm. and then then says you might die. So mm. it's forcing them all to look at their mortality in a kind of really um, blunt and collective way. And so I think there's a lot of kind of you know, screw that, I'm fine, I can cope. It's a coping mechanism, this this defiance, this kind of, I'm I'm not vulnerable. It's, it's so right. I, I walked into my kitchen the other morning, my father-in-law was there. He was just in there touching stuff, and he went, hello, all right, I'll have a cup of tea, he's from Birmingham, and he said, I tell you what, I won't get too close because of that bug that's going round. Mm. He's like, Lawrence, for God's sake, and my father is defiant. He's like, there is no way anyone is stopping me providing for my wife. And it's just like, Dad, it's not about you. It's about the collective responsibility. And if you get sick, and at 92 you might well, yeah. you're taking away resources from everyone else. And he sort of gets it, but you're right. I think naughty is the word, naughty parents. I've been around to see my uh, elderly neighbour who's, uh, I think he's 90 actually, and uh, he's got COPD, chronic uh, obstructive uh, pulmonary disease. So he's definitely, not only is he old, but he's definitely in the vulnerable group. And I've seen him walking along the road with his, okay, he's got his mask on. I thought, where are you going? But vulnerable group is code for, you might die if you Mm. get this. Yeah. Mm. And that Mm. is a very, very hard thing to have to deal with. That's very confrontational. So it's not surprising that people are very defiant in response to that message. Yeah, yeah. Or the other thing you get that I got from my dad was, I don't care if I die, this sort of pseudo hero thing he's like he's being heroic going to the shops where actually he's being selfish and this is what my sister was brilliant at at telling him he's not being heroic he's being selfish um Imogen I Mm. I wonder is it is it uh, I'm we're we're fascinated here about your experiences on the quotes front line um and you talked a couple of times about being a, a mental health first aider which is something I've actually come across in business and was kind of inspired by. I went to, we talked about it before, haven't we, Paul, about this mm. utilities company, a rather dull company in Reading that I walked in, and there was a whole wall full of friendly faces greeting you, saying these are your mental health first aiders. Um, I think there's, it, it's probably even more uh, bleak in the experiences that you've had, but could you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Sure. I mean, I got interested in it because of working in the places that I have, uh, and I have managed and worked alongside so many people who've gone through really extreme trauma. Um, you know, I've, I've had colleagues and staff members who've lost their entire family. Um, I had a, a guy I worked with line managed in Indonesia after the tsunami whose um, pregnant wife had died. Um, I mean, really horrific stories of people who were still living in uh, shelters, um, living in temporary accommodation, living in tents and trying to cope with that while they were coming to work. Um, and that was what sparked my interest initially. And what I think I learned and what has been reinforced through the studying and the volunteering I've done since then is that no matter what somebody has been through, um, there is a enormous, enormous power to simple kindness. And to mm-hmm. just being able mm. to sit with somebody who is in distress and let them be distressed. And just provide a, a, an ear, I guess. Exactly. And that's really what mental health first aid is about. But it's teaching people to do that in a very safe way so that you, I mean, you, as a therapist, you need to protect yourself because you're exposed to a lot of other people's traumas. So it's teaching people the basics of how to protect themselves. But really what it's about is helping people to understand that if somebody you're talking to is in distress um, or is struggling with something that actually there is enormous power to just letting them talk and to staying with them while they process what is going on with them. You don't have to fix it. You can't fix it. You can't make the pandemic go away. You can't change reactions in them that are hardwired for decades. But what you can do is sit with them while they say, you know, I'm afraid. And they say, I'm Mm. sad. They say, I'm lost. I'm confused. I don't know what's going on. I'm so worried about this person in my life. And you can just be with them while they're talking about that and not judge them and let them be there and not be like, you know, well, why don't you try this? And haven't you done this? And let me tell you about when it happened to me. No, you just stay with them and let them talk and then support them through that. In, in In this COVID pandemic, there'll be some people that are running at a seven out of 10 anxiety wise, but there'll be some that are near 10 
yeah. there's some would be some that um are particularly vulnerable you know and the mo- the most most stressed most vulnerable probably need to be targeted what would you say to the people say oh you you can run into difficulties if you try to treat people too soon you can make it worse whereas of course we know don't we that a lot of the time people have delayed responses and they three to six months later they develop problems so it's it's a bit confusing what a a mental first aider should do in terms of who they talk to and how and when well, as a mental health first aider, you, you work with whoever's in front of you. And the yeah. first thing we teach is uh, how to identify somebody who might be in trouble. And I think mm-hmm. right now, one of the things that drives me bananas is that uh, we describe what we're going through as social distancing. And it's not. It's physical distancing. Mm-hmm. Socially, we can still stay in touch. We can talk. No one's stopping us from talking to each other on the phone, um, messaging each other, um, FaceTiming each other, whatever platform is your platform of choice. So we can still make connections. And that's the thing that's one of the most, if not the most significant preventative factor when it comes to um, recovery from long term trauma is, uh, is, is the quality of your social network. So right. That's yeah. why staying in touch with people is so important. And as a mental health first aid instructor right now, one of the things I say to people is the people to look out for in your social network are the ones who've gone quiet. Mm. Once mm. you've fallen off the radar, um, there'll be some who can't stop talking, and that's a different reaction. Um, there'll be some who get quite argumentative and irritable, and our job as mental health first aiders is to understand that, that is also a product of what they're going through. It's not because they're cross with us. It's just a manifestation mm. of what they're feeling. So we have to be very, that's where the kindness bit comes in. That really have to be very forgiving and understanding of this range of reactions. But the people we worry about are the people who've, who've gone quiet. Um, and those are the people it's worth picking up the phone to or being proactive, sending messages saying, look, are you haven't heard from you in a while. Are you all right? Can mm. I help? Is something mm. going on? Or are you just, you're just watching Netflix 12 hours a day? I don't know. But I, those are the people to check on. So that's where it starts is consciously trying to maintain and to reach out to and to support people through social connection yeah because i think that's one of the cardinal symptoms of someone who's suffering from a a mental illness is they start to withdraw from their social network anyone with severe anxiety or depression is going to do that i think yeah you've said this before paul yeah absolutely something occurs to me actually is listening to you imogen is that um there's two things one is um some people i know mostly men but me particularly um find it very hard just to listen you're so desperately i don't know maybe we're programmed to want to find the answer maybe it's my job you know let's find the solution to this but i think it's actually quite useful to realize that actually some people are not looking for a solution they're looking for as you would put it kindness and someone who can uh, listen to them and and some humanity and i was wondering whether what you're talking about and I'm, i'm sure the answer is yes can be um we could take from these traumatic situations into real life uh, and if anything good comes of this it can be maybe the realization that kindness and listening are are the important are the important things or are we going to forget it all when the world turns back to normal oh my god i really hope not because mm. I, I when i teach this i say to people and i'm absolutely serious um having gone through particularly the samaritans training myself is that really knowing how to listen is the closest thing I will ever get to having a superpower. It is absolutely transformative. It transforms your your relationships with your partner, with your family, with your workplace. You learn to hear the emotional content behind the, mm. the sort of superficial information that someone is conveying to you. And when you can do that, and you can really listen to somebody, you start to see them and understand them in a completely different way. And the quality of your relationship changes. And that actually is not a, it's not very difficult. It's, it's interesting because for, for people like, you know, therapists I really admire, people like Carl Rogers, who I studied extensively, um, mm. you know, they spend a lifetime really engaged in the, in the art of listening. Um, and you can do that. But also I teach in about an hour and a half the basic techniques of active listening. And this is something I think people, we have this sort of idea that listening is something innate, that you're born a good listener, that you either you are or you aren't. And it's nonsense. You can learn how to be a good listener and you can learn 
quite easily. And once you really start to practice it, you will feel the power of it yourself as well. There's, you know, there's, there's very structured technical ways that you can learn to speak differently to people and to pay attention and to consciously try and notice things about people. And once you start doing that, that's when the magic happens and you start really giving somebody your full and undivided attention, which is really the most precious thing in the whole world you can ever give anybody. We do it so rarely really sit down and give somebody park our own feelings park what we're going through and really focus on what somebody else is thinking and feeling and saying and wants us to understand we all want to be seen that's what we want and that's what you'll give somebody so i can think of straight away of some techniques that we were taught in our training about listening or active listening and it's very basic stuff isn't it i mean first of all of course you're you're taking someone into an environment that's reasonably private and quiet and then you're giving them the time to talk of course but it's about isn't it's about sort of starting with open questions isn't it and then perhaps closing down a little bit on what what people are saying reflecting back on what on what they say exactly so you start by asking you know somebody if they're all right and the general rule of thumb is if they say yeah i'm fine and um then you ask them again just to say okay i'm just checking because i noticed a couple of things and the worst thing that happens is that they registered that you're paying attention to how they are which is a lovely thing um, but if they do then say actually I'm having quite a hard time with X hmm. and you just encourage them to say more about that most of listening involves you shutting up it hmm. involves you not saying stuff but when they do say things and there's and and they say something like um, you know I just don't think I'm coping then you can say, you know, gosh, that sounds difficult. Can you, can you say a bit more about that and not be like, oh, my God, I'm going to run away from that. Or let me try and explain to you how to cope. Or, or, or just come out with platitudes like, oh, well, you're going to be OK. Exactly. And not putting words in their mouth. Yes. Uh, let's hear a bit more about that. And how does that make you feel? Yeah. Then you've got a way in actually to talk about maybe some models of coping haven't you at some point you're going to go away you can't be with everyone 24 7 and you're not going to be holding their hand for the next uh four to six weeks they're going to need to learn some coping mechanisms particularly the most vulnerable people um I, when people have opened up to me at work um because i i try to be a good active listener but i do find it difficult it's it's kind of an honor uh, that they trust you enough to say, uh, Imogen, uh, I don't feel like I'm coping right now, particularly if they don't know you very well. It's, it's the, there's something about them exposing themselves to you, making them vulnerable in front of you. That, that's really um, quite an honour in a way and a, and a gift, if you like, that you, you must use wisely and not squander, which um, I think um, you, you said two things, <laughs> you said, which really resonated with me. You said, most listening involves you shutting up uh very good and paying attention is a lovely thing and you're right it's a sort of gift that someone's give you to let them into their mind if they say um i really don't feel i'm coping um so well is, is that true to say yeah 100 percent um it's it's really is a a compliment in a way that somebody trusts you enough and trust that yeah. you won't judge them to say that um Equally, it's it's a lot to take on sometimes. Mm. So I think the question about how you manage that, how you end the conversation mm. and how you balance it with other support is really important. Mm. Um, you need to take care of yourself. And that's something that we very much teach. I'm doing a course with an organization called Redar right now uh, where we do we cover this, um, which is the, the self-care is part of the package. And that was a complete revelation to me particularly coming mm. from age where you're expected to work yourself into the ground to go into a sector like therapy where actually self-care is part of your ethical responsibility. It's your job to make sure you are in the best state to look after other people. And when you need to step back and take a break, it is your job to do that. That was a real shift to me. And that's that's not negotiable, is it? Because no. if you become severely stressed and develop uh, a mental disorder, you're not going to be as helpful as, as you would like. And uh, I think we are seeing a lot of stressed health professionals out there at the moment in the NHS, and this is going to be a massive health burden three to six months down the road from now. We are going to be seeing the post-traumatic stress syndromes coming through and 
depression anxiety disorders in our NHS staff and we were going to talk a little bit I think about the things that the NHS is doing right at the moment to try to reduce that that likelihood. Yes, I mean, I think it's important to remember that there's there's a spectrum of supporting here. I mean, what the yeah. NHS frontline doctors are going through, and my sister's in A&E right now, and so is my best friend, like doing triage. Mm. Um, and I've, I've supported doctors um, through Ebola response in 2014-15. Um, is really different to what a mental health first aider is going to go through, which is really just um, the art of providing that space for somebody and for being able to step back from those conversations if somebody um, becomes overly dependent. And there's some very basic tips if you're talking to somebody and you feel like the conversation needs to end because you're exhausted or they're tired or just because it's coming to a natural end. And one of those is just to ask somebody what, what they're planning to do when the call finishes. That's what they used to teach us as Samaritans. What are you going to do when we stop talking? Future orientation. Exactly. Throw people to, you know, oh, well, I'm going to go and make myself a cup of tea or have a bath or watch some telly. So that's, there are very easy and gentle ways to get out of those conversations. It's one of the things that people worry about if they're going to get into a stressful conversation um, or to an emotionally intense conversation they don't know how to get out of. And that's that's an understandable concern, but it is there are strategies for managing that as well because that's part of protecting yourself. With regard to what is going on with the NHS, I think um, my sister certainly is, has had some training um, around what they call uh, psychological PPE, which I rather liked. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, about um, how to how to protect yourself, but I do worry that there's a lot of young medics, particularly nurses, who's um, who are going to be really challenged by this. I mean, they're doing a great job now, and what we typically see is that people uh, people cope. We're amazing survivors as human beings. So the day to day, you know, we just get up, we do what we need to do, we follow what we're the protocol, we cope with what we have to cope with. And I've been through it. I mean that. I did a year in Haiti after the earthquake, and in that year we had a, a cholera outbreak, a major hurricane, and a and a quite serious political emergency. And you just you just cope day by day, and it's not mm. until afterwards when you relax that actually you're that's when you know your your mind's not stupid; it knows you've got to get through whatever's on in confronting you day to day. But the three to six months afterwards is typically when you will start to have a reaction. And that's mm. what we see in conflict zones, particularly. And this is a much more extreme, frankly, than what we're going through here. But people who have been through war zones, um, including survivors of that conflict, it's, it's afterwards when they start to process. And that's when, that's when it becomes really, that's why it's so important to have support networks in place that, yes. that go for that full spectrum of time. Yeah, I can see parallels, though, with the war zone in the... Um the critical care units of, of our hospitals at the moment where doctors and nurses might actually end up treating their colleagues mm -hmm. and unfortunately they lose them yeah i, I can i can see it that there being parallels there um, and, and not having time really to process the grief as well as the trauma and your own fear of death i i know one one nurse actually whose colleague in middle age uh, ended up um, on an ITU and died. And she was really, really scared about going back to work after that happened, understandably. Of course. No, this is this is, this is is really acute stuff. For the medics on the front line, and my heart goes out to them, it really does, um, because they are watching what's happened to their colleagues. Um, they're watching what's happened to the patients in front of them. The survival rates from ITU are really bad. If you go on a ventilator, it's about 50-50 statistically. So they're dealing with a lot of death. The thing that actually I remember very much from working with doctors in 2014-15 was that the challenge psychologically for them was, was really existential, that they, this was a disease they couldn't treat. And right. so they couldn't, they couldn't actually be doctors. They mm. were providing basic palliative care and, and, and supporting the body and basically whether or not people made it through their illness was not in their control not in their control and their whole philosophy and raison d'etre and belief and existence as doctors was built around the fact that they could make a positive intervention 
Yeah. So this is where we go back to what the nature of trauma is. And trauma is something that undermines the way you see the world. And gives you a sense of helplessness. Yeah, exactly. And this is what a lot of doctors went through who went out to Sierra Leone in 2014-15 was that they, they'd spent their whole lives training and believing and giving their whole being to the idea that they could intervene positively. And then suddenly they were in a situation where really there was no treatment. There was nothing they could do. They could just support. And they found that psychologically very difficult. So that is a very specific thing to pandemics yeah. that I would, I think, is is... I'm glad that the NHS, I think, is factoring a lot of that in and that they will need support further down the line because it really makes people question, you know, what's, what's medicine for? What was I for? And then there's a whole bunch of challenges, psychological challenges around wearing PPE, which is really um, difficult to work in. You have to be incredibly rigorous in how you put it on and take it off. There is no flexibility in that rule. People were donning and doffing in Sierra Leone every 45 minutes because of the heat. It's not yeah. that bad here, but they're already having to change the temperatures on some wards. The, 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 the um, COVID wards I know in my local hospital are run at a different temperature to make the PPE more manageable. But having to stick to that regime is really hard. Plus, you're in a situation where they are having a lot of their coping mechanisms taken away, particularly everything to do with touch. They can't mm. hug each other. They yeah. can't. They can't hold hands, um, no. they can't wipe away everybody else's tears. And that applies to their families as well. They can't, I mean, what it must be for my sister, she's A&E, my nephews are nine and five, and she's got to explain to them that when she walks through the door, they can't run and hug her, when the thing she wants to do most in the world is hug them. Yeah, I'm just thinking about uh, when I lost a patient to suicide, um, and it wasn't just me, of course, that everyone involved in that patient's care was affected um, mm. and we were able to have face-to-face -face debriefing sessions with an experienced psychotherapist where everyone was involved in that patient's care was together in one room and that was very very powerful and very very useful to me I remember uh, having that debriefing ses session face-to-face -face with people physically in the same room it, it must be very difficult at the moment to not have that facility what what I've noticed the NHS doing right though is trying to well definitely providing virtual huddles online there's one happening every lunchtime in my trust for example where all junior and senior doctors get together I'm sure there are, uh, well I know there are equivalent uh, forums fora for nursing staff uh, and the trust is also providing free mindfulness sessions and other types of intervention as well that are group-based where a community can form i think that's probably is going to build up a certain amount i hope a certain amount of resilience in the staff that take part in those things and i hope they do take part mm. well we know from um i'm so sorry that happened to your patient by the way that must have been really Thank difficult you. Yeah, it was. I remember. I remember very distinctly uh, you you being severely affected by that. Maybe even more severely than you than you thought. It occupied your mind a lot in that period. I remember yeah. it very well. Well, I remember asking Mark actually, how long can I expect this uh, emotional reaction to go on for? You know, um, it was mm. uh, it was definitely affecting um, my sleep and making me feel very anxious. Yeah, but mm. uh, he was very helpful actually. You know, he said all the things that you've been saying as well Imogen you can expect to feel these things you can expect to have this broken sleep for some weeks mm. as a response to this it's a normal process it's funny you talk about the group puddles and stuff because in our own little way always when I hear about the stuff that Paul deals with and I'm hearing about the stuff that you deal with the corporate world um, really seems rather trivial and um, and 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 not important but then again uh, chronic stress, wherever it comes from, uh, can cause a, a great a great toll on people, even if it isn't stuff that's um, physically life-threatening. And I, I was being put in charge uh, of, of getting the huddles going Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So people log on, uh, they see each other's faces, uh, we have a bit of a laugh, we go through the keyhole to find out if we can work out whose house is whom, etc. And although it's, it's sort of pretty light-hearted and they've uh, they've given me the honour of doing it three times a week. I've noticed the attendance is going up a little bit as if we need that little boost of community uh, to to help us through. 
no, we're not in a war zone and we're not suffering from severe mental illness or suicidal, but we are a community of people that kind of need each other. And A, it's very interesting, but B, it's kind of heartwarming, really, that I'm part of this little community that, in a sense, actually quite needs needs each other. I think it's rather lovely in a way. And we're having this discussion now because although we're not in a war zone, we are dealing with something that is feels uncontrollable and you know we were talking about control earlier and you know to feel helpless against uh, a threat over time does give you that the risk of uh, you remember we talked back in the day ollie about learned helplessness models of depression i think if you yeah repeatedly feel helpless uh, to prevent the stress that you're experiencing over time you are running an increased risk of of depression doesn't matter how resilient you think you are so yeah sharing is definitely a very important way to prevent that yeah. and when something happens that um makes you realize how helpless you can be mm. sounds like is what happened to you with your patient that despite everything you did you you couldn't you couldn't stop that well um, yeah, although I was probably picking over things that I could have done that I didn't do and things like that. Oh, you, you were know. beating yourself up terribly. Mm. Um, you, were, you were trying to, you know, rewrite the story. Could I have done any better? Mm. And it took me a while to realise, you know, of course, well, I, I knew it cognitively that I didn't kill the patient, you know. The pa- you know, um, she was responsible for doing that. But um, that was, you know, I had to, I had to actually believe it, you know, and that was a process. Um, and you know lots of things happened um, between the time that I saw her last and her her killing herself that we had no idea about that were happening out in the real world uh, in the domestic situation that of course we are not privy to Um, and this is a fact of life that doctors are less in control of events than they think they are and particularly at the moment on the Covid wards that's true Well I really hear how you feel that in your own work though Mm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very aware of the limitations of our work um, in psychiatry in that, uh, you know, putting it frankly, we can't correct shitty lives, you know, Um, we can do our best to mediate or mitigate the um, consequences of them. But sometimes people's lives are just so awful, their their environments are just so awful that we're, we're, we're a little bit limited in our uh, powers to intervene hmm. and yet you go into it of course to make people better right and this of course goes exactly back to the existential thing that Imogen was talking about where um, I'm a doctor I want to make people feel better patient after patient I can't make them better which completely undermines the entire uh, reason you went into medicine and similarly with you when you I used to tell Charlie when he was a little boy that Uncle Paul uh he said, what does Uncle Paul do? And I said, oh, he makes people happy who aren't happy. And he thought that was great. And of course, when you're unable to do that and the consequence is the worst possible outcome as with your patient, again, mm. that really undermines your universe, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I cannot imagine what's going on for the critical care doctors now who are seeing that happen time and time again where their best efforts are, are for nothing, really. Um, they're not in control of the situation but it's happening repeatedly uh, to the point where I should imagine they're just uh, becoming inured to it until later on when uh, I think reality will probably hit. They're probably um, managing to deny the, the reality at the moment to get through it. They're coping. I mean, you just mm. you, 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 you're, you go into kind of survival mode. Yeah. Um, but there is something I think you're, it's really powerful hearing you talk about the sense of, powerlessness particularly in an environment um, right now where we're we're describing doctors as heroes mm. and where we're describing them as lifesavers and mm. you know as an aid worker I've lost count of how many times I've come back from crisis situations and people say things like oh you're so marvelous you know well done you for going and saving all those people and I've spent months just seeing everything I couldn't do and everything I couldn't fix Right. All the problems I couldn't solve. And I feel utterly fraudulent when people say to me, you know, that's marvellous what you did. And because in my head, I'm thinking, I didn't, I didn't really do anything. You know, well, I, and I, I think that's a, that is a cognitive distortion there, though, isn't it? Because 
probably the uh, things that well the events that you remember having but little control over are the ones that are going to have primacy in your mind whereas i should imagine there have been lots of people that you helped incrementally with their suffering and of course those are not as prominent in your mind Doctor, stop trying to therapise our guest. Uh-huh. Differentiating the uncontrollable from the controllable and identifying strengths and looking towards the positives are things that mental aid for mental health first aiders do um, and they need to do it to themselves. Yes, 100%. That's absolutely true. Um, but I think there is something to acknowledge in, firstly, that what we're going through collectively is a loss of control and a loss of safety mm. and being, you know, doctors are feeling it very acutely, as we've just discussed, this sort of being confronted with their inability to do very much. But all of us are actually being asked to sit still and do nothing in a situation where our bodies are telling us to react. And yeah. that is a very dissonant thing to be going through. So this being confronted with the fact that we don't have as much control over our Mm. lives and over our world as we thought. It is a very profound one. But I also want to go back to something that um, you were talking about earlier with, I was really hearing what you said about your um, business huddles and bringing people online um, and bringing them together, even virtually, because there is so much evidence, goes back to the Second World War, actually, um, uh, that your number one greatest protective factor in any acute situation which is what we're all in whatever we're doing is your social network and is the community around you and in the second world war actually when people were invalided um, the soldiers were invalided from the from the front line there was a, a um, ministry of health sorry ministry of defense policy to keep patients together with the unit that they'd fought with wherever possible when they went into convalescent homes or into long-term recovery to try and keep those units together because the people who'd fought alongside each other and been together through those situations were the best support network because they were the ones who really understood. I just want to go back to what you were saying about huddles and about um, the power of bringing your community together even online because there's so much science behind that, so much research, years of decades of research um, that says that the most significant and important protective factor when we're in a crisis situation, which we're all living through now, is the community that surrounds you and the people particularly that you're working with through that, which is will be the same for doctors, it'll be the same for the, um, the testing guys in the labs, and the same for the food bank guys. It's the people who are alongside you working with that are your most protective factor. If you go back to the Second World War, for example, this was so well known that when uh, soldiers were invalided from the front and brought back to convalesce, that there was an MOD policy of keeping them together, keeping the units together and making sure that men convalesced, convalesced sorry, that they convalesced alongside people that they'd fought with because those were the people who really understood what it had been like in their particular corner of what was going on in this huge situation. And it's the same for us, that being alongside people and connecting with those who are going through the same experience is a really profound thing. And it's so important and it's so nurturing. And just being able to say, I'm not doing so well with this you're not doing so well with this no I'm not doing so well with this either okay well let's you know we can make a joke about that we can have a conversation about it but we both know we're in this together and the being in it together is incredibly powerful and also you learn from each other you learn coping uh, strategies off each other don't you as well I mean Mark Mark was saying in our last episode that uh, some of his most effective work was in groups and he would facilitate the group but most of the curative power was the uh, group itself the people interacting it's like my group of uh, management consultants, as you might imagine, there's quite a few big heads in there, loads of people who think they're really, really clever, some who are irritating. And yet, when I'm not with them, interacting as a group, I kind of miss them, really. And it's part of my tribe. Uh, and uh, I, I, it's, 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 a, it's like you said, Imogen, well, like both of you said, um, to, be, to be part of that group 
is very important because we're kind of social animals. And even though the business I do is more, more prozoic and there's, there's no real risk, there's no real peril, there's stress for sure, uh, to be... To be to be part of that group is rather rather quite uh, quite a lovely thing. And you still need them, even though even if they're incredibly irritating. Yeah, <laughs> incredibly irritating. I mean, I'm not even the most irritating of them, to be honest. I'm sort of average. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, you can imagine. Well, all amazing. things are relative, aren't they? That's uh, that's, <laughs> that's an right. important lesson in psychiatry, but also important lesson in. Uh, listening to you uh on yeah the... On, on the ph scale i'd be seven neutral i'd be seven neutral in the normal world i'd be like acidically annoying yeah. <laughs> that is brilliant love it i think um we should end perhaps on a slightly more positive note uh, we will be unlocking at some point and one of the things we thought we'd talk about imogen was how we what's our exit strategy how we get out of this and i think you're saying well we ain't going to do it just through an app which i was very disappointed to hear yeah no uh yeah sorry about that no public public health is is very clear i mean it's sort of the testing and the the contact tracing which is a key thing that's not happening right now and the isolating but actually there's a lot if you look at past epidemics um and there have been quite a few in the last few years um, and we have this sort of weird idea that they happened in Africa and things are different there, so we can't learn from them, which is nonsense. Uh, we have an awful lot to learn from the way that um, the peoples of Sierra Leone, Liberia and Guinea adapted to Ebola. What we learn is that what turns things around in epidemics is community choices and community behaviour. Mm. Doctors can manage the caseload, they manage the patients, but they don't break the transmission chain. Our job in the community is to break the transmission chain. And mm. one thing I really hope happens in this country, and typically it doesn't happen until further in, that governments finally realise that actually localised responses that are community-led are what, are what change, change things. And I, I think if you think about it, if everybody who's listening to this is even remotely like my experience, not just here, but in multiple emergencies around the world, there is an extraordinary thing that happens when we're in crisis, which is that people really actually look after each other. And yes, there's a lot of scams and problems and um, some things go wrong, but there is a huge amount of academic evidence to show that actually in crisis situations, rather than the social meltdown that we're all kind of conditioned to, to fear, you know, that the society's collapsed and there's looting and there's theft and all of that actually the academic evidence and my personal experience tally exactly in that the opposite happens and people come together. And I wrote a post right at the start of this where I said the upside of this whole situation is you are all going to discover how many amazing people you have in your lives. People you nev maybe never even thought of, the neighbours you never met will turn out to be the people who provide you with food when you're on your 13th day of quarantine and gagging for <laughs> some lasagna. Mm. Mm. They'll be the ones who step up. And that's what happens. Mm. And it is a beautiful thing. And mm. if we take anything forward from this emergency, I hope it is that. I hope that suddenly we'll all realise, certainly here in London, we've met people on our street. We've been living alongside for years. And we never knew who they were. And now we really start to become communities and we really start to figure out what it means to look out for each other and do the stuff that governments actually can never do and will never do and shouldn't do. It's not their job that we look after each other. And that is a, a, a wonderful, wonderful, hugely psychologically sustaining thing. So that's the thing I hope. And you hope that this government understands that and will be able to um, mobilise communities and, and realise that the, the response has to be local and in everyone, everyone's uh, street or everyone's neighbourhood. That's where it needs to happen. It's where the contact tracing needs to happen. It's where people need to behave responsibly, I guess, uh, in order yeah. to get uh, in yeah, order to relax the lockdown. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I'm not going to comment on the technicality of how this response works. I've never done an epidemic response in a developed country, which is one of the reasons this is so interesting. And I'm very emotionally involved in this in a way that I've not been. You know, in other countries, I've always been the person who could leave, and this is my home. I do know that Chris Whitty, who's the chief medical officer, knows all these things because I mm. worked alongside him in 2014-15 in Ebola and he is an amazing mm. man. Um, so I know that the government is getting some very good advice on this because I know that Whitty has written papers on the significance of, of community. 
Um, and I look at how many people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people who signed up to be NHS volunteers, uh, hundreds yeah. of thousands of people who joined the mutual aid groups, the willingness to get involved in what is going on in your neighborhood and be part of the solution is right there. And I really hope, I really hope that we get to that, that they, that this, this is a, we have an administration that realizes that actually top-down management is, is only going to get you so far. It has its place for sure, but that community behavior is what changes things in epidemics. It's what turns the situation around. Well, that's an amazing place, I think, to finish and think about a summary of. Um, uh, there's far too much to summarise, actually, but I've got a few uh, a few Jerry Springer-like final words. And it's funny that Jerry Springer used to be saying, be good to yourselves, because um, that's also coming through here. There's one thing I'll pick up on the technology, and I do, I'm, a, I'm a technologist. I'm a data geek. I'm a IT geek. It's what I do for a living. However, the stuff you kindly sent me, Imogen, on, on um, you know, the use of, of tech, uh, uh, particularly when it comes to contact tracing and things like that, I completely agreed with in that the, the wise words that, that, that you sent to me said basically, do not throw tech at this problem, that's never going to work. And actually, that's very much in line in what, with what we tell our clients. This isn't a, a problem waiting for a tech solution. I, I, my personal belief is that technology will be uh, very useful as part of a coordinated solution. Uh, everybody has a mobile phone, so to a certain extent, you can you can tell where people are and there are enormous uh, data protection issues associated with that so i'm quite i'm quite optimistic though about the use of technology but you're absolutely right if we start saying uh, to vodafone hey give us all your um, uh, phone records and we work out who has talked to who who has contacted who who has been in the physical location according to gps gps coordinates this person that is absolutely doomed doomed to failure unless you take you know what problem is it that we're trying to solve first yeah, actually, wait, 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 sorry, back up, because the, the point I was making about tech is actually slightly different, um, which is which is to do with, with visibility in the state. Because you're, you're, the, the challenge with an epidemic, I'm going to get technical for a minute, the challenge with an epidemic is that you have to break the transmission chain um, in every social group. Uh, and with people like me who are you know, British citizens who are taxpayers, who are very visible to the state, that's relatively straightforward. Your problematic populations and where the virus goes to hide and will continue to be a problem is among the populations who either are out of sight of the state or who actively evade it. Mm. So it's, it's um, illegal immigrants, it's homeless people, it's people who, who don't file tax returns, it's anybody whose who's wider life depends on not being seen by the state. So if you look at what's happening in Singapore right now, Singapore thought it had this virus under control. Their numbers are going up massively right now because they're going up in the undocumented migrant communities where people can't self-isolate and those people are not on the state radar. And that's the major reason for me, quite apart from privacy, where your tech solutions will fail. If you don't have people who go, somebody who can go into communities in London and speak Bengali and speak Arabic and talk to the people and engage the people who do not and will never want to be seen by the state, mm. then you will not succeed. Got it. It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not, that's why tech is not going to solve the problem. Um, or not going to, certainly not going to solve the whole problem because the, 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 virus will, the virus seeks out vulnerability and it will find the communities who cannot evade. That's why it's, it's utterly a product of poverty. All epidemics ultimately basic determinant is poverty I, I can absolutely see the that the, the virus will still be spreading in london amongst the um illegal immigrants working on construction sites right now because they at the moment are still allowed to work you know the guys that are from a poverty-stricken part of eastern europe the ones waiting on the corner of a street to be picked up in the morning uh to go to work those are the guys that yeah could pose I, I mean not to single out or stigmatize a particular group but you can just see how um these groups could continue to to spread the virus uh, far and wide actually well, I, I think imogen sums it up right it's those who have an interest in not being seen by the state um i yeah. guess it's whose survival depends on it actually yeah, it, it, yeah. exactly it's, yeah. a, it's a, everybody's making everybody in this situation is making risk benefit calculations and that's why poverty is the key determinant because if your need to do things that expose you to the virus is more essential 
than avoiding the virus, yeah. i.e. you need food. We, I mean, one of the things we learned in, um, in West Africa was that if you don't, you can't quarantine people unless you provide food supplies. Mm. So in, in effect, we could be seeing interventions that help to uh, mitigate the effects of poverty in these minorities that are under the radar. And will the society be forced to care for these people in a, in a yeah. sense? Uh, yes, yeah, and, and perhaps in some cases give amnesty to people who are living here uh, illegally um, uh, as, as far as the state's concerned. It's going to be a complicated process, uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another mm. this is one of the reasons also why South Korea is such an interesting case study, because the reason South Korea saw such an explosion of cases very early on is because it's all connected with one church that is regarded within South Korea essentially as a cult. Not the Moonies. No, not the Moonies. It's not the Moonies. It's a different church. It's a minority church. But what the contact tracers there did was recruit members of the church to be part of the contact tracing team. Mm. So rather than try and make the whole thing visible to the state, they recruited the people who could actually... It's all about trust. This is mm. why it comes back to psychology, ultimately. It's all about trust. So they recruited members of that church community uh, to become contact tracers, to go and talk to people and convince them to isolate because they would listen to somebody from their church where they would not listen to the state. Mm. And that's how they, that's a really important part of how they manage the South Korea situation. It's a fascinating we case of being. We're going to have to become so much more attuned to how our different subcultures operate in this country, aren't we? Oh, my As God. A, and absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And how they perceive disease, how they perceive illness, how they perceive mm. their relationship with death. All mm. of that is going to come mm. into play. Yeah, mm. 100%. Um, right. Fantastic. Can you give any, was there anything else you wanted to say, Imogen, add to what you... Cause we, well, I was wondering whether we'd asked Imogen the fundamental question of why she loves doing what she does so much. I'm wondering whether some people would say you'd never... You, you know, you, Why would people run towards a disaster zone? Mm -hmm. And I, I think we... We, we'd 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 love to we'd love to sum, summar, summarize our time with you by asking you that question, Imogen. Why do you do it? Well, I did it out of curiosity the first time I went. Um, that's the honest answer. I just was a nosy journalist, and I went to Aceh after the tsunami. And what I found was this thing that I described before about how people come together and people explore sides of themselves and find things in themselves that they never knew they had and that is a beautiful thing to see and to be part of and to support and it comes down actually to you know if you ask me to summarize everything we've talked about in the last you know hour or whatever um which is kindness and yeah. that's what we need more than anything at the moment is just if you can do nothing else, just be kind. Just forgive the person who's grumpy or shouts at you because they're just having a hard time. That whole thing about you never really know what someone's going through, so therefore be nice to them, that mm. has never applied more. And that should guide our daily interactions with each other. It should guide how we look at um, all sorts of aspects of this response because that really is what emergencies do. They make us understand how vulnerable we all are and how shared an experience that vulnerability is but also how powerful it is to be able to help each other through it. And you do that through kindness. Absolutely. I, that's a fantastic summary. I think, you know, what you've nailed on the head there is how empowering it can be to help someone. Uh, yeah, it really can. How good it can make you feel. And we're all capable of being in that privileged position of helping someone. We can all do it. And then that's mm -hmm. what we're all going to have to do to get out of this together, I guess. There are some resources that you... Um... Uh, have had some part in putting together uh, free, which always sounds good to me, uh, in terms of if people want to learn more and, and can start their journey of being uh, trained in some of the things you've been talking about. Uh, Redar UK? Yes, Redar, which is literally the word red and the letter R after it. They are a professional humanitarian training outfit, one of the best in the world, and I'm a trainer with them, full disclosure. Uh, but they've now got some funding to provide training in humanitarian response to people who are involved in the UK and that's volunteers, professionals, anybody who's having to deal with COVID, even through just having to support a family member, can sign up and it's two hours and it's free and it is it is the really practical, here's why everyone's struggling a bit, 
here's what's going on. Here's how to manage yourself. Here's how to help other people in two hours and it's free. So you can't really go wrong. And I've no, I'm, I'm a trainer with Red Eye. I designed the training, but I'm, apart from that, I just think it's brilliant. I think it's an opportunity that anybody can take up and that is a very rare thing. I think uh, I might might be a new student studying. Uh, <laughs> not 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 image, not just because it's free. I, I think the stuff is fascinating. And thanks ever so much for uh, describing your experiences so well. You're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Great. And so I guess on that we should just say uh, goodbye. And please do get in touch with us. We say again with your own experiences of getting through this crazy time, Oliver. Yeah, and we've had we've had people talking to us and and their own survival tips which we'll be going through as well in due course as you know you can find us at y whytlf.com uh, and on facebook where we're pretty active our handle is ytlf or you can just type in why the long face and it'll get you there uh, and imogen uh, has her own website and you can write and i was so disappointed imogen when you didn't use the opportunity on your website to say write on my wall <laughs> uh, your surname. i was devastated I thought, what an opportunity missed. I'm missing anyway. a trick there. I really should, shouldn't I? Right on my wall. Yeah. Yeah, you need some digital consultancy. Ah, so that's what this is all about. Always on the make. <laughs> Always on the bloody make. Anyway. Never off duty. Never off duty, like off a bent one copper. Thing need, one thing you need to know about both aid workers and therapists, as as uh, Mark will tell you, is that we have no money. Goodbye. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> uh, absolute pleasure, Imogen. Thank you so Thank much. You. That was we'll really fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Bye for now. All right. Okay. Bye.